have your Bible with you today, please open with me to the New Testament book of Luke. It's the third gospel. We'll be in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 25, Luke 14, 25. And today, today I've titled my sermon, How to Hate Your Family. How to Hate Your Family. And for some reason that's not reflected on the screen, although the text is. Um, the, the title should be How to Hate Your Family, and you might think, well... Uh, you know, Pastor, I don't need any instruction on that. I did just get through spending Thanksgiving with my family, and, and I, I realized that a lot of families, there's all kinds of family tension, uh, family drama, those types of get-togethers, and sometimes people dislike and maybe even harbor a little bit of hatred in their hearts for certain people, sometimes even in their families. But, you know, uh, bitterness and unforgiveness and, and hatred and those types of things, they deserve a sermon all by themselves and they are not the focus of our passage. But instead, Jesus is going to say something that's very hard to accept, and that is that if we're going to be his disciples, and probably all of us say that we want to be his disciples, Jesus says if we want to be his disciples, we must hate our families. That's what Jesus said. So how, I mean, that, that kind of chafes at us whenever we first hear it, whenever we read it. How are we to understand what Jesus is saying? Well, uh, there's no better way to find out than just digging into it. So if you found Luke 14, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. And we're going to pick up reading in verse 25. Uh, Jesus says, well, verse 25 says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now Jesus makes what is what is arguably a very difficult statement in verse 26. If you don't hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Now I want you to to understand. Jesus makes a distinction in verse 26 between salvation and discipleship. He makes a distinction between salvation and discipleship, and those things are not the same thing. And if we're to understand what he's saying correctly, we first need to understand the context of his words. Now, in Luke's Gospel, uh, where we pick up in verse four, uh, chapter 14, Jesus is near the end of his earthly ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem, of course. He's going there for the last time. He knows that uh, what awaits him is dying on the cross at the hands of sinful men. That's where Jesus is headed. He's just gotten through saying in chapter 13... He, he likens the kingdom of God and, being, and coming to him in salvation as coming to uh, getting an invitation to a banquet. And so a lot of these people that are hearing this uh, are, are beginning to follow him. Uh, multitudes, the Bible says a large crowd or multitudes uh, are following him. Uh, some of them are coming because they're intrigued by, by what seems to be, I mean, that, that's kind of, a, that's kind of a, an appealing uh, proposition, isn't it? Uh, coming to me in salvation is like being invited to a banquet. Who wouldn't want to go to a banquet? Lots of food. Uh, it's, it's lavish and everything. And, and so some people are coming because of that. Other people are, are following after him because they like the spectacle. They want to see Jesus perform another miracle. It's interesting to see a lame man be able to walk. It's neat to be able to see somebody who is born blind or, or has, has had some kind of deformity be healed and all of a sudden they can they can walk, or they can see, or, or they can hear. And some people are following him because of that. Some people are following him because 
He's given them bread. He's fed the 5,000. He's fed the 4,000. And so some people are benefiting from his ministry, and so they're following because of that. And so all these people are, are coming after Christ, and he turns to them, and he says, Now, wait a minute. You all want to follow after me, but where I'm headed, I'm going to the cross. Are you willing to do that yourself? And that's what he goes on to say. He talks about taking up the cross and following him. And then he, uh, in the passage, if we were to continue reading, he goes on and talks about counting the cost. And, and we need to count the cost before we follow him. And so he turns and gives them this challenge. And I want you to see the distinction that's made. Salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. Addie, would you put up that text again? I want you to look at verse 26. He makes a distinction in verse 26 at the beginning between coming to him and then at the end following him. Coming to him and following him. The first, coming to him is salvation. Following him is discipleship. So what's the difference between these two things? The main difference is the cost and who it is that pays that cost. The main difference is the cost and who pays it. Now, when we come to Christ for salvation, who pays for that? Jesus, right? Uh, we, we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We know that we don't earn salvation. We cannot buy salvation. Uh, we cannot pay for salvation. Jesus paid for that, but being a disciple, which literally means being a learner, meaning that we learn Christ's ways and, and in the power of the Spirit we follow after Him, we, uh, we live out those, those ways that He teaches us. But with discipleship, that costs us something. We're the ones that suffer the loss. We're the ones who people may scorn, people may uh, turn away from, people may cut their ties with us. And, and that is precisely what Jesus is talking about in verse 26. He says salvation is like an invitation to a banquet... But discipleship is like enlisting in the army. Okay, there's a big difference here. Now, before we move on, it would behoove us to consider whether or not either of these things fit us. First, are you a Christian? You say, well, I want to be a disciple. You cannot be a disciple unless you are a Christian first. You, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter or see the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, first... Have you ever responded positively to the invitation to salvation? And if, if not, you need to do that today. But if you have, and I know many of us have, if you have, the question then becomes, are you really a disciple? See, a lot of, a lot of people, they want to be a Christian without being a disciple. And you can be a Christian without being a disciple. You can go to heaven without following Jesus in your day-to-day -day life. You can, get that, you can get in, the old-timers used to say, by the skin of your teeth. You know, a lot of Christians are nominal Christians. Some are irregular in their church attendance. Some are there every time the doors are open. Some uh, try to live like they're supposed to. Others don't. Either way, the thing that binds them together is their lack of commitment to Christ. And what I mean is they will follow Christ as long as... He wants them to do what they already want to do themselves. They'll follow him so long as it's comfortable for them. They'll follow him so long as it doesn't cost them anything. But the moment it does, all of a sudden they're nowhere to be found. There's an old joke about uh, uh, an old man that used to only come to church on Easter and, thanks, or Easter and Christmas. 
In one of those services, he was walking out the door and he shook the preacher's hand. The preacher said, uh, friend, you need to join the Lord's Army. And he said, Pastor, I'm already in. I'm in the secret service. You know, there's no such thing as secret discipleship. Either the secret will destroy the discipleship or the discipleship will destroy the secret. See, a lot of people want to be in the secret service and he's not looking for people in the secret service. He's looking for people that will just follow him no matter what. So, which of those things are you? Do you go along with Jesus so long as it's good and, and so long as it's what you want to do and so long as it doesn't cost anything? Or do you go along with him no matter what? Now, that's just part of verse 26. The difficult part the part that we wrestle with is that little section where he says, if anyone comes after me and doesn't hate his family, cannot be my disciple. So what are we to make of that? Because uh, this, it, it makes us scratch our head, doesn't it? It makes us kind of scramble for answers to try and explain away what he said. Because the Bible says, doesn't, uh, does, doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to love everybody? And Jesus says we're supposed to hate our families. Well, the Bible is very clear. Jesus himself is very clear. We are to love everybody. He said that we're to love and pray for even our enemies. He says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Certainly our family uh, fits in that category. He reaffirmed the commandment in one place to honor your father and mother. And here he is saying you have to hate father and mother. In another place in the Bible, Paul says that... uh, the husbands are to love and, and, and respect their wives. Wives are to love and respect their husbands. Kids are to love, honor, and obey uh, their parents. In First Timothy, Paul goes on to say that if somebody uh, is not taking care of the members of their own household, that they've denied the faith, they shouldn't even be calling themselves a Christians because they're worse than an unbeliever. He goes on to say that if, if uh, a family member has a, a parent or a grandparent that's a widow, they need to take care of them, and if they don't, or if they need to take care of them because doing so is a form of piety, and beyond that, if they don't take care of them, it brings reproach. Now, I say all that because all that paints a picture of loving family, taking care of family, family unit, importance of family, and here, all of a sudden, Jesus says, you have to hate your family. And that's why this, this statement of Jesus is so startling. What does it mean? Well, remember, when you read Scripture, when you read the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture. So what Jesus is saying here, if we understand it correctly, is going to fit with everything else the Bible says. So what does Jesus say? Well, I looked at the original language, and and when Jesus uses this word hate, he uses a word that literally means hate. And I looked at that, and I thought, well, maybe there's like a little caveat that it doesn't mean hate. It just looks like it means hate. But it, when he says hate, it means hate. And in fact, as, as you read throughout the scriptures and, and you do a, a word study on this, this word's also translated as detest and despise along with hate. So what in the world could he be meaning? Well, one thing that we have to keep in mind is Jesus did not speak Americanized English. Jesus lived in the Middle East, and he spoke Aramaic. And their way of talking, their way of communicating, was much different than ours in many ways. And one of the things that was different was that they were given to hyperbole. 
And you might remember what hyperbole is, is exaggeration for effect. And so the way that they often use this phrase hate, or this word hate, was to show preference of one thing over another, or one person over another. For instance, in Malachi 1, and, and Paul quotes this in Romans 9, the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, speaking of God, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have what? Hated. That's also uh, the name of a famous book, I think. Now, that's not to say that God had an emotional feeling of hatred towards Esau, but what that's saying is that uh, he, was, he was preferring Jacob over Esau because through Jacob, that's the line that the promise went through, not Esau's line. Another time in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 29, the Bible talks about Jacob. And Jacob had two wives. That's not the way God had set things up. It was wrong for him to have them, but he, but he had them, Rachel and Leah. And you remember all that incident with Jacob and uh, working for Laban for all these years, and then he uh, marries the wrong woman. You remember all this? And Leah's kind of ugly, and, but he's stuck with her. And, and Rachel, he, he works for longer, and Rachel's beautiful, and he marries her. And, and you think there's some family drama in that. So anyway, Genesis 29, the NASB, which is the translation that I usually use, it says that in verse 31 it says that the Lord saw Leah was unloved. That's, that's not quite as literal as what the King James renders this, and that is that she was hated and Rachel was loved. Now we know that Jacob loved Leah because he stayed married to her. He had relations with her. He fathered multiple children with her. Uh, he loved her, but it's showing a preference for Rachel. He preferred her. Now, that is precisely what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow after me, you must love me more. You must prefer me to everybody else. Love him more than who? Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, so on and so forth. In other words, anyone and everyone, including family, has to come second to Jesus. We must prefer him even to our own families, that flesh and blood relationship. And see, Jesus is not saying here, you have to hate your family because they're your family. I mean, that would be a very unchristian thing. God himself was the one who ordained family in the Garden of, of Eden. But what he's saying is, if there's ever a time when your family wants you to do this, but I you do that, you do that instead of this. If there's ever a time when, when you have a choice to do what they want you to do to follow them or to follow me, we must unhesitatingly follow Christ. And those that, that, that choose Christ, uh, to those that we choose Christ over, it probably does feel like hate to them. If, if essentially you say, you know what, I know you want me to do this, but I really feel like God wants me to do that, and we do that, they're probably going to feel like we kind of dislike them, maybe even hate them. Now, we don't. We love them. It's just that we love him more. And really, this accords quite nicely with the other things that Jesus said. For instance, you might write this, this reference down if you write notes down or, or jot down in your Bible or something. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 37. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Ladies, that's, that's, why, that's why you're having troubles. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then he continues in verse 37 by saying, 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now that's the same thing you just said in Luke. It's just a little softer. You remember the great commandment. A man stood up and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbors yourself. That first part that he said, love God supremely. Love him with all your being. That's the same thing that he's saying here, just in different words. Love God more than anyone or anything else. Now, in our culture, Christianity is falling out of favor. In our culture, if you say you're a Christian, in many circles, you're thought of as uh, kind of of an uneducated rube. Oh, you're an old hillbilly. You're you're a simple-minded person if you have faith and things like that. But having said that, it's still, in most families, a pretty acceptable thing if you say, I'm a Christian. Most families are accepting of that. But in Jesus' day, and in his culture, if you became a Christian, many times those families would cut ties with the Christian. And even today, you think of what it would be like if in a, in a devout Middle Eastern Muslim family, if one of those people became a Christian, what would happen? The family wouldn't have anything to do with them. Same type of culture as what Jesus was living in. And what Jesus is saying is, if you are not willing to make that kind of commitment, that your own mama would say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, or your, your husband or your wife, or your kids, would say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, I'm going to disown you because you say you're a Christian. He says, if you're not willing to make that kind of commitment, you cannot be my disciple. And I wish I could, I wish I could soften that, because that's not comfortable, is it? And I imagine that whenever Jesus said that the first time, there were a lot of whispers going out throughout the crowd. I bet there were a lot of murmurs as people turned to one another and said, Can you believe he just said that? Here's, a, here's somebody who's wanting me to, to, to turn my back on my own family if it means following him. I can't believe he would say that. And no doubt many of them uh, stopped following him. And all these, all these years later, it's still uncomfortable to think in stark terms like... Do you, do I love Jesus so much that I would choose him over my own mom and dad, my own kids, my own spouse? Not that we go out and look to break the ties with him because we don't do that. I and mean, that's, that's not what we do as Christians. But they may break ties with you. And, and, and a lot of times uh, Christianity is presented today in terms of, well, if you'll just follow Christ... Everything's going to be all good in your family. Uh, Jesus bring peace to your family, and sometimes that happens. But it could also be just the opposite. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. And there may be a, a, a circumstance where we find ourselves, we're following Christ, and there, there may be people even in our own families that say, you know what, if you're going to be like that, if you're going to be one of these Christians, I just, you know what, you can, you can just go somewhere else. I won't have anything to do with you. See, Jesus isn't dissuading us from becoming his disciple. He's just telling us to count the cost first. Is that the cost that we are willing to pay? And if not, why not? Is that a cost that you're willing to pay? And if not, is there something in your life that says that, that you value more than following Jesus? Because if, if there is, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Because you're putting something in God's place. And if we are willing to be his disciple, 
what do we need to do? Well, these are going to sound very simple, and they are simple, but I don't want to make it simplistic because to actually do these things, I mean, they're, they're transformative things if we will do them. Be serious about reading your Bible. And I don't mean just, you know, pop up your phone, oh, there's the verse of the day, I've read my Bible today. Hey, I've done that before, haven't you? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. But you know what I'm talking about, right? More than just sitting down and saying, oh, well, I guess I need to read my Bible. I've got to read a chapter. That's, that's commandment number 11. Thou must read one chapter. Don't know why. But thou must read a chapter. Be serious about our prayer life. Be serious about living a holy life. Sometimes we say, well, I want to live a holy life in all these areas. This area, well, we'll just not talk about that. But all the rest of it, you can have God. No, Jesus wants all of it. We need to be serious about following the commands of God. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I say. Follow my commands. There's a man, probably very few, if any of you, if I were to say his name, probably nobody here would recognize it. William Whitting Borden. Probably nobody here recognizes the name. He was a young man that grew up in the early 1900s. And he grew up in a very wealthy family. I mean, early 1900s and they were millionaires. So, I mean, they had lots of money. And he was set. I mean, he just had to keep doing what the family was doing. Wasn't anything illegal about it. Wasn't anything under the table about it. He just had to keep doing what the family was doing. And, and he could live in a, uh, the life of luxury for the rest of his life. But he became a Christian. And he decided he was going to be serious about following God, about following Christ. And even though he came from a very rich family, he turned his back on his wealth. He, he had been traveling through China. He became, a, he, he became burdened with the, the needs that they had. And he began to reach out to them. He was a missionary to them. Then he, he decided that he was going to become a missionary to the Muslims. And he took a, took a boat to Cairo in Egypt at the age of 25 years old. He, he stopped there to learn Arabic so he could reach out to him. He caught spinal meningitis and within a month was dead, age 25 years old. His parents, sometime later, uh, had his Bible given to them, and they found three entries. There were three dates and two words next to each date. On the first date, when he, when he turned his back... On, uh, on the family fortune to be a missionary, he wrote, he wrote the date and he said, no reserve. No reserve. His father had told him, you'll always have a job in the company. But once, but once this man turned his back on the family company, his dad said, you'll never work in this business again. Next to that date, he wrote, no retreat. And shortly before, he de before his death, he wrote, no regrets. And I thought that was so powerful. That, that's, the way, that's inspiring to me. Here's a young man that, that had everything, and he gave it all up to follow Christ. He said these, th these, these three phrases, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. And may we all live that way. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come?
And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just in the quiet of this time, I, I'm not here to do some high, kind of high-pressure sales because that's, you know what, even if I could force you to make some kind of outward commitment, say the words, it wouldn't be authentic. What God is wanting is people like us, just regular old people, say, you know what, I want to live like Jesus said to live. Now, I'd encourage you just now, just in a, a time of prayer, maybe you need to make that commitment. Say, I know I'm going to fail, but I want to follow you. And mean it. What's that going to look like in your family? What's that going to look like in your business? What's it going to look like at, at school? What's that going to look like in your church? We can only imagine that, can't we? The differences that that decision would make. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness because... You have been following Christ. Maybe there's something specific that you've not followed Him in. It's all too easy to let that idolatry creep in. Maybe there's no point in your life when you've recognized your sin against God and you've cast yourself wholly on His mercy. If you've never done that, the Bible says you are condemned already. But that if you'll put your faith in Him, that He'll save you, He'll forgive you, change your life to give you a new heart a new nature new desires Heavenly Father Lord if there's somebody that needs to uh, put their faith in you today I pray that you would convict their hearts and lead them that way and give them the, the courage to do it. Help them to put their faith in you. And God, for those of us who are believers, this is such a difficult, uh, stark, black and white call to discipleship. Lord, we thank you that you didn't uh, hide anything. You didn't uh, do false advertising. You didn't try to sell us something that that was not the case. You just told us what, what would be required. 
God, help us to love you more than anything. Have that as the lens through which we make all of our decisions. God, forgive us for those times of, for lack of any other better term, idolatry when we've put people or position or uh, whatever it is on, on the throne of our lives instead of you. God, help us to be the Christians that you want us to be in the places that you put us. And I always pray that we will live lives that please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.